Praise the Lord. If you would, turn in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 20, verse 21 to 27. Oh boy, I did my notes in a real small font today, so I hope I can read it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 27. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice as like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down. (laughs) Right? Some of you hear the rain. The streams rose and the wind blew. And beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Did you see that? He's addressing some things here that will make sure the house won't fall. Amen? The house did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house upon sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Lord, this is your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word would be clear. Speak what you want to speak, Lord. Use me, Lord God. In your name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. That? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This message is called Fickle Faith. F-I-C-K-L-E. Fickle Faith, if you're taking notes. That's a funny title. Fun to say, though. Um, today I want to talk about your faith. And I want you to think about something. What if you... This is sometimes how I think about ministry. Uh, As a pastor, um, there's a responsibility in every word that you preach. In fact, every word that a teacher teaches, every word that a parent says to a child, there is a responsibility on how we lead people. And one of the worst things that you can have, in fact, um, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about those who are Um, true disciples, and those who are false disciples. Those who have a foundation that's good, those who have a foundation that's bad. And there's a definite um, danger in having a false assumption that I have a foundation that will hold up. Or my faith is such that it's a strong foundation and I'm good. And... There's a fear that you could be a false disciple. 
And I'm going to go into that a little bit. There are a lot of people that followed Jesus and then suddenly they followed him no more. There were large groups of people following after him. And I'll show you in a minute. And then there were, Jesus turned around and suddenly they just didn't follow him anymore for one reason or another. And as a minister, I don't know how the day of judgment is going to be. I don't know how it will be structured and I don't know exactly if, if I will even be aware of what happens, but what if God put me as a minister and I had to stand in the judgment room as every person came by? I just want you to picture that for a minute. And somebody comes up to the throne of Christ and or, or the judgment seat of God. I'm sorry, wrong throne. Judgment seat of God. And there I am standing... My family, my kids come to the throne of God. The church members come to the church of God or the throne of God. And they say, God says to him, they say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I don't even know you. And wouldn't they then look over at me and say, everything you told me to do, I did. And now he's telling me that wasn't Correct. What I thought was right, what I assumed was a solid foundation, what I assumed was right, he's telling me, I don't even know you. And I as a minister don't want that charge against me. I don't want to go into a place, and a lot of ministries, I talked about in my last sermon, and I'll be going in this area a little bit again, uh, two terms, easy beliefism, and lordship salvation. And it's real easy sometimes to preach easy beliefism, where if I could just get the crowd to say this prayer, praise the Lord, you're all saved and our work is done here. How many of you know what, what I'm saying is the truth? In a lot of churches, we send all kinds of information through our denominations, about so many people got saved. So many people now are right with God, and I'm so glad so-and-so gave his heart to the Lord, but there's no lordship involved in it. And lordship, let me give you a definition, means he is the Lord of my life. I am his disciple. I'm not just somebody that prayed a prayer. I followed that up with a life that is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if I don't preach that message, if all I preach is an easy beliefism, and I encourage you in that, or if a person begins to move away from that profession of faith and begin to say, hey, there's no life that needs to be lived with this profession, then I've done a disservice. And I don't want to be accountable one day And say that, hey, that's what my pastor told me, or he insinuated, or he made me feel like it was just say a prayer, and then there's no more that we're doing in in our faith in Christ. And so when you see Jesus here, um, there's a large group of people that have what I would call a fickle faith. Okay? There were crowds, in fact, let me say this first. There are a lot of ways that we evaluate churches. And you say, well, is that a good church or is that a bad church? And three real 
normal ways that we evaluate a church and what they teach and what they preach is the size of their building, the amount of money that's in their budget, and the amount of bodies that are in their seats. What does their building look like? What does their budget look like? And how many people are attending their services? And if we meet those criteria, or if a pastor has that criteria, he feels like he's doing God's work. And sometimes you can fulfill those three things and totally miss the message of the Bible. And totally avoid even ever building disciples or people that are really living for Christ. But you fulfilled those three goals. And so we've got to be very careful not to uh, preach the gospel of success with those three things. And look at the criteria that Jesus had because here's the truth. Jesus went through his ministry, and I want you to picture this in the New Testament, because somehow we picture miracles just constantly happening in the Bible even before Jesus came. But there weren't any. When Jesus came, there were miracles everywhere. I mean, he would, one town he would raise somebody from the dead, Lazarus. Another town he would heal blind eyes. Other town he would, he would heal people who were lame. For 40, 38 years he was lame. A woman who was sick for 12 years, I believe. And everywhere that he went, he did miracles. Now, what do you think would happen in Henderson or Evansville area, if there's somebody that seems to fulfill prophecy in every way, and everywhere he goes, there are these kind of miracles. And the Bible says that, um, in fact, uh, one of the passages I'll be in today, he had just fed the 5,000. And if you read the narrative, there were much more than 5,000 there. Because the way that they numbered it was, was with the men and families. And so 5,000 people, that's a lot of people. 10,000, 15,000, maybe even more likely. So how many people were following him around? And as you begin to watch the life of Jesus, you fully expect this to happen. Everywhere that Jesus goes... They say there were 5 to 10 to 20, maybe even quite a bit more, were following him everywhere he went. Think about that. We We don't fathom that, do we? Can you imagine one individual? Now, it makes total sense. If somebody were doing that in our city, walking to all these areas, performing these miracles, couldn't you totally see five or 10,000 people following him everywhere to watch the show. So everywhere he goes, here's this large group of people waiting to hear him teach, waiting to hear him talk, waiting to see what he's going to do next. And they became followers of Jesus. Followed him everywhere. And suddenly, his ministry shifts. One hinge on Jesus' ministry that I'll be talking about today 
is around the time when Peter professes, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And he says, upon this profession of faith, Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which I'll talk about in a minute. But at that point, in all of the Gospels, everything begins to change. In fact, they call it the way of the cross. Because up until now, he's been doing miracles, and he's been teaching messages, and he's been telling people things about heaven that nobody ever knew, performing miracles that nobody's ever done. Crowds of people are following him. Now it's time to set your face toward Jerusalem and accomplish what I was sent on this earth to do. Now that you know I'm God, now I'm going to do what I was called to do. And something happens. He begins to tell his disciples at this point what discipleship is all about. What I'm going to expect of you as disciples if you're going to survive. And it's the same message he's trying to give us. If you want to survive as a Christian in this world following me, here's how you're going to survive and here's the kind of faith you must have. And so he sets his heart toward Jerusalem and as he begins to go toward Jerusalem, by the time he gets to Jerusalem, there's almost nobody left. Five, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 And almost nobody's left. It's just one lonely cross. John was there. A group of women were there. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea had the, the, the courage to go bury him in his grave. But otherwise, the crowds were no longer there. And so we began to wonder, what happened? What happened to the multitudes? And Jesus regularly talks about the multitudes. Listen to this. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Matthew 15, 32. Do you see the two groups there? Disciples and the multitudes that are following Jesus. Matthew 23, 11, or 23, 1. It says, it's going to have to come closer. Then spoke Jesus unto the multitude and to his disciples. Mark 9, 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude around them. Now, King James says multitude. Some of your Bibles will say crowds. Crowds. Now, there was a famous preacher, and I would tell you his name, but I can't remember his name but a very wonderful preacher, and I just cannot remember his name, but he said, um, they said, why do you preach the way you preach every Sunday? What keeps you that focused and that inspired to preach the way you do? And he said, because I'm convinced that the churches are full of people that are on their way to hell. The church is full of people that are on their way to hell. That's why he preaches the way he does every week in his church. And church, what I'm trying to speak in this message is there were crowds that every, everywhere that Jesus went. In fact, I've got uh, five or six more scriptures that show the crowds and the disciples. Crowds and the disciples, they followed him everywhere. And folks, today in this sanctuary, 
we have a crowd and we have disciples. We have a crowd and we have disciples. In a lot of churches, we have crowds and we have some disciples. Jesus, when it was all said and done, he was crucified, was resurrected, and how many disciples did he have? 120. They witnessed a resurrection, and he had 120 disciples waiting in the upper room. Where did they all go? They witnessed miracles. They witnessed everything that he did. In fact, let me go back and look at one such area because these are very fascinating. In fact, each gospel has an area where it starts to deal with being a disciple. Like it stops the Galilean. In fact, if you're looking at a map, Galilee is the northern area where Nazareth is around the Sea of Galilee. And everything in the north is where Jesus did most of his ministry. And when this Galilean ministry finishes, in fact, only one gospel, John, actually sees him go out of Galilee to Jerusalem multiple times for feasts. How many know that? But most of the gospels just have him going to Jerusalem at the end from Galilee. So as he finishes up the ministry in Galilee, that's where he's doing his teaching and his miracles and all these wonderful things to the people, and everybody's following him around. Well, all the Gospels take this shift. And it's on this profession of Peter that the apostles begin to be revealed to them that, yes, I am the Messiah, but it's what's called the messianic secret. He's telling them, don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet, because they'll try to make me their king. You know, they want me to be their temporal king, They want me to be David. They want me to go wipe out the Romans. They want me to be a temporary king who meets their temporary needs. And they want me to meet all of their needs. They don't want me. They don't want what I'm coming for. They don't want eternal things. They want temporary things. And they're never going to understand what I'm coming to do if they don't receive me right. Don't call me the king right now. Messianic secret. Keep it a secret until... I'd be lifted up. And he's trying to tell them some things about his divinity and his mission. And so he goes, and in John chapter 6, verse 66, you see the people's displeasure, and they don't want to be his disciple anymore. It says in John 6, 60, it says, On hearing it, which is what Jesus said, Many of his disciples, now who are these people? They have decided to follow Jesus, right? Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about it, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe 
and would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From that time, many of his disciples, what? Turned back and no longer followed him. You do not, do you, you do not want to leave too, do you? Said Jesus to the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon, who through one of the twelve was later to betray him. So do you see these multitudes of people, whatever happened in this chapter, the multitude of people said, we're not following you anymore. They abandoned Jesus. They were following him. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people were following Jesus. And then suddenly they stopped following him for some reason. So we've really got to study John chapter 6 and figure out what is this great falling away. How many know in 2 Thessalonians, it says there's going to come in the last days a great falling away. And in the time of Jesus, this was a great falling away and something happened that made them fall away and choose not to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, it says in the beginning of John chapter 6, it says this, a great multitude, now how many is a great multitude? Some of your Bibles say a great crowd followed him because they saw his signs that he performed to those who were diseased. So why did they follow him? Because they saw the miracles. Then it starts building up here in John chapter 6. Verse 11, it says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, Gather the fragments that remain, so nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them, filled twelve baskets, um, with the fragments of the five barley loaves that were left over, and they had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him their king, he departed again to the mountain to himself alone. They already believed because of the signs. And some of you have walked in this house and you've spent half of your life saying, God, if you'll just do a sign. If you'll just do a sign. If you'll just do a sign. And Jesus, everywhere he went, continued shaking his head and it says he would sigh. And he would say, why do they always need a sign? Why do they always need a sign? By the way, do you know what a sign is? points to something that's real. If there's a sign that says a curve is ahead, the sign isn't the curve. If there's a sign that says there's a stop sign ahead, the stop sign or the sign that says stop sign is not the stop sign. 
If it says that there is a crossing up ahead, the sign is not the crossing. It's pointing to something God wants you to see. And there was something God wanted them to see, and it wasn't the sign. The sign was pointing to a reality that they missed. They had eyes, but they couldn't see in church. Today, we've got the same problem. These people followed the miracles because of the healings. Jesus just fed 5,000 and more with a few loaves of, and, and, and a few fish. And they're all amazed at what he did. In fact, they're really enamored with the bread. How does he make bread? How does he do that? And so anyway, it says, when the people therefore, this is John six twenty four. when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into boats, came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. You're like, praise the Lord, they're seeking Jesus. Do you see this? Signs and miracles and wonders, all the things we've ever asked God for. Oh, it's all happening. It's finally happening. God is good. God is real. Man, I want more of this God because he's going to do all these miracles, all these signs and all these wonders. And what God wants is faith. God wants you to want him. And it says they were seeking him, but were they? Jesus says, I just want you to seek me. I want you to love me. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. And here they are seeking him. Praise God, finally. Right? The crowds were seeking him. They were packing the house. John 6, 25 and 26, the next couple of verses. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were full. I tell you the truth. You're seeking me because you got your belly full. You're not seeking me because you love me. You're not seeking me because you want God in your life. You're not seeking me because I'm the God of heaven and I am the Messiah. He's trying to teach us here about what it means to be a disciple. You only seek me because your belly is full. You don't seek me because of the sign. See, if they would have sought him because of the sign, they would have said, that sign proves he's the son of God and eternity rests in him and I want eternal life. No, they didn't want that. They wanted the God that does miracles. And some of you are in this house today and you're still mad at God because of the signs and because of your belly. And God's saying, if you'll just begin to seek me like a disciple. And they go on. Jesus isn't done. John 6.27 says, Do not labor for food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. You see what he's saying? Quit seeking out temporary needs in this world, and that's the only reason you go to church. That's the only reason you love the Lord. That's the only reason you seek him. And when, and you know how I know that? Because when something doesn't go right and you don't have money, 
God, you don't fill my belly. You don't take care of me. When somebody persecutes you just a little bit, God, how could you let this happen to me? God, how could you do this to me? Why would you be like this to me? And let me tell you something. He's going to begin to tell them another people that they're just like. And he doesn't want us to be like. He says, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? Basically what they're saying is, what can we do to supernaturally make bread? That's what they're asking him. What can we do to supernaturally make bread? What can we do to be, be able to do this? Like, like uh, Simon, what can I do to buy this power of the Holy Spirit? John six twenty nine. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. He's saying, I'm doing this work so you can have something eternal and understand something eternal. And they just keep saying, we don't want eternal. We want temporary. He goes on. Jesus, uh, then they said to Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? They just seen him heal blind eyes, raise people from the that were sick, people that were dead, cast out demons, did all these things, and fed 5,000 on a few loaves and a few fish. And they said, well, what miracle are you going to do to show us? It says, our fathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. He's comparing them with the people now. Jesus could have fed 5,000 people for 40 years and they still wouldn't have believed. You said, that's not possible. If he fed me for 40 years, I would believe. They're saying, can you do this miracle like you did back in the Old Testament where they had it every day? Do that miracle for us. Because God gave them bread out of heaven. Now we want you to do that miracle for us. Do you know that God could bless you every day for however old you are? God can bless you. If you're 40, he's been blessing you for 40 years. If you're 30, he's been blessing you for 30 years. And it doesn't matter how much God blesses you. It doesn't matter what miracle he does. If your God is your belly, you'll still never worship him. You'll never love him. You'll never care about him. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down to heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Basically, they were saying, give us more of the natural bread. <laughs> we don't, we want you to take care of us. We want you to be our, our king is what they're asking him to be. Be our king because if you're the king, you can keep performing magic tricks for the rest of our lives and we're good on this earth. And he's saying, no, I'm trying to raise up a people that could be just like me. And I'm not here to be fed. I'm here to feed. I'm not here to be a... God is trying to raise up people that are just like Him. 
He's trying to raise up servants that will live for him. People that will be disciples and not just listeners. And he's trying to raise up people to do his work. And so Jesus is starting to get serious here about the work. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, and this really gets him. Unless you eat of my flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has entered into eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As, and as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me is alive because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Boy, and that bothered him. And you might have been bothered too because he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, he's he's gone over the edge. But here's the thing, church. We have eternal life. We're going to live forever. The world that we live in is a short span of time. He's setting up discipleship here. If I'm going to live forever and because of Him I have life forever and I have bread and I'll never be hungry again, that the desire for the hungers of the world is gone. Because I have eternal life waiting right around the corner, I don't have to be ambitious anymore. I don't have to look for the things of the world to please me anymore. That's the bread of the world. That's what they wanted. They were greedy. They were hungry. They wanted the things of the world. And he's saying, there's something higher. Take eternal life and you won't be so worried about your life in this world. If you give up your life, you'll gain it. If you understand how close eternity is, then why are you holding on so tight to the world? He's saying, my disciple can't hold on to the world and hold on to heaven. I've given you eternal life. You're not going to die like these other men. You're going to live forever. You're right around the corner from eternity. So why are you depressed? Why are you angry? Why are you bitter? Why are you so down on life? Because this life is almost over, church. We're almost there. We're really close. And eternity's forever. And this life is like a vapor. It's almost gone. And he's trying to say, my disciples don't put all their eggs in this basket. They're looking for eternity. That's the beginning of being my disciple. Is you understand that you have eternal life and the rest of the world doesn't. And it changes everything. So Jesus begins to teach them. He begins to teach them what it means to be a disciple. This is where everything shifts. And get this, church. This is called the way of the cross. This is where his ministry ends in northern Galilee, northern part of Israel. In fact, let me tell you something here. You're going to like this. He's on the northwestern tip of Galilee. He's as far north as he can be in his ministry right now. As far north as he went, I believe, in his whole whole ministry. And this northwestern part called Caesarea Philippi, 
This is an area that used to be, there was the tribe of Dan. It's northwestern Israel. And you say, well, there can't be any gold there to find. Church, you're not going to believe what he did. He begins to ask them as he's approaching Caesarea Philippi. And as he's walking up to that great city, in fact, I want you to picture it in your mind. It's the highest mountain in Israel. There's two top, topographical areas that, are really, that really stand out in Israel. And that's the mountains around Jerusalem and especially the mountains around Dan. In fact, this is the largest mountain in Israel and it's not even close. Mount Hermon towers above Israel. This great mountain. And there are 72 springs that flow out of this mountain. And all these pools of water around the mountain. And there's this hole in this mountain. It's called the gates of the underworld. It's a center of Roman pagan worship. It's a place where no good Jewish person would ever go. It's the Las Vegas of Israel. It's a wicked place that the Romans... Things in the Bible or you're not going to get this. They're approaching the gates of the underworld. Pagan idolatry. Terrible city. Disciples are all with him. He knows he's about to take his final trip to Jerusalem and be crucified. He begins to tell them how he's going to be mistreated by the rulers. How they're going to crucify him and he's going to die and be raised in three days. But as he's approaching the city, he says, who do they say that I am? And and they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say that you're uh, a great prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. So who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of a living God. And Jesus, right there at that great rock, it went up 100 feet, 500 feet wide. The city was built on top. And there was this great hole in the ground. They said they've never had a rope long enough to figure how deep it was. They thought it went into hell. And right there at that rock, he said, on this rock, I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What he was saying is, if you have faith in the living God, And then he says something interesting. If you want to follow me, here he's getting ready to take his trip straight to Jerusalem to die. If you want to follow me, he said, my disciples deny themselves and they pick up their cross and follow me. Now that sounds normal, right? Here's the problem. He hasn't died on a cross yet. What an unusual thing to say when you haven't been Convicted of the crime yet. You haven't been sentenced to death on a cross. Nobody mentioned anything about a cross yet. What are you talking about a cross? He stands on this rock at the edge of the underworld, the pagans believe, and says, on this rock, I challenge hell. Hell will not stand against me. I've got my face set toward Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. He's going to go in the depths of hell. And he's going to destroy every work of the enemy. And he says, if you want to be with me, 
You better deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And he hadn't even died on a cross yet. That's how great he is. He knew exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to go straight there. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to rise in three days. And if you want to be my disciple, you do what I'm doing. And he says, deny yourself. And you say, well, I'm not one of the crowd. I'm one of his disciples. If you're one of his disciples, in fact, the definition of disciple is literally a learner, one who follows another's teaching, an adherent, and one who imitates their teacher. That's what a disciple is. And in order to receive eternal life, church, my blood is not going to be on anybody's hands here. In order to receive eternal life, we must be disciples of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute. That one night I raised my hand, prayed the prayer, and that preacher told me everything was fine. You have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to receive him as the Lord of your life. You have to be one that's imitating him. You have to be one that he says, denies yourself. You mean, what does that mean? Deny myself. That means yourself is going to want to do things that are contrary to God and his word. You're going to want to be angry and self is going to say, be angry. And you're going to say, no, because I'm following Jesus. Self is going to want to say, be selfish. Do this, do that, be greedy, be angry, be bitter. Oh no, but self, I feel so good when self tells me to be bitter at my mom, be better, bitter at my dad, be bitter at my coworkers. Bitterness feels so good. But Jesus says, deny yourself. In fact, let me give you a picture. That's the throne in your heart. You've been sitting it in your whole life. Whole life, it's your throne. You do what you want, when you want, how you want. I can be mad when I want. I've got individual rights. I can be angry when I want. I can do whatever I want as far as sin. And Jesus says, let me have that seat. What does that mean? That means when somebody hurts me, I have to say, Lord, somebody hurt me. Can I do what I want? No, deny yourself. And I'm going to tell you how to handle that. You say, well, that's pretty good. I can add that at times and it would be good. He's either the Lord of your life or he's not Lord at all. And God's saying, deny yourself, pick up your cross. And Jesus knew as I start traveling with my cross, he was going all the way from the gate of hell, Caesarea Philippi, the farthest place north, to nearly the farthest place south, And he knew that he was going to bear the brunt of everything. But he was able to do it. And why? He was able to do it because of the glory that was set before him. He knew what eternity meant. He knew how eternity was affected 
by every action that He took. And He's saying to us, grab your cross and let's take this journey all the way north, all the way south. And then at the very end of this, we're just going to, you're going to take the brunt of your neighbors. Listen to me. You're going to take punishment from family members because of the cross. You're going to take the brunt of neighbors and get this church. You're going to be forced to go through hard times. You say, well, Chad, why don't you preach health, wealth? They're watching you. They're watching you carry your cross and they're trying to see how you react when hard times come. Pray. Pray that God will relieve you of it. But they're watching your actions in good times, blessed times, and they're watching you in bad times. They're watching you in sickness and in health, in rich and in poor, good times and in bad times, and they're trying to see how do you carry your cross? How do you represent Christ? They want to see something different. He says, if you follow me, Deny yourself and pick up your cross and take the way of the cross with me. Praise the Lord. Stand your feet. Praise the Lord. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord God. Father, I just pray for disciples, Lord. Father, I pray that we go from any kind of faith that is fickle, Faith that is real, Lord. Faith that will go through anything, Lord God. Faith that will stare hell down, Lord God, and walk right through it. Faith, Lord God. Other faith that allowed people to be martyrs, Lord God, to be sawn in half, Lord God. Father, to live in mountains, to live in out in the cold, Lord God, to stand up, Lord God, to threats, Lord God. Father, that kind of faith, Lord. Not fickle, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm going to read something here, and it's kind of unusual to read now, but I want you to think about this. This is the definition of fickle. say, wow, you're going to give a definition of fickle for an altar call? Listen to this. An adjective meaning change, changing frequently. Are you fickle in your faith? I'm going to keep going here. Do you change frequently when it comes to your faith, or is it like a foundation built on a stone? That it doesn't matter what I have to go through, I will do it for Christ. Is your faith built on a foundation, or is it shaky? It says changing frequently especially in regards to one's loyalty. Are you loyal to God when your belly's full, but not as loyal when you run out of money? Or are you loyal to God no matter what? I'm going to serve Him. Eternity is right around the corner, and I'm going to be full of joy because I'm ready to be in God's presence. Do you change frequently, or do you... I like that. In regards to one's loyalty... Here's a, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't redress it. Especially in regards to one's loyalties, interests, and affection. 
Wow, are you only affectionate with God when He's doing miracles and He's giving signs and He's giving wonders? Or are we affectionate all the time? Do we, do we trust God with everything, in everything, through everything? And then it says, um, here's a sentence they give. Web patrons are notoriously fickle, a fickle lot. They bounce from one side to another on a whim. Synonyms, capricious, changeable, variable, volatile, mercurial, vacillating, fitful, irregular, inconstant, disloyal, undependable, unstable, unsteady, unfaithful, faithless, irresolute, flighty, giddy, skittish, erratic, impulsive, unpredictable, random, informal, an informal blowing of hot and cold is what the dictionary says. And then it gives another sentence. Today's fickle fans demand instant success. <laughs> Some of you said, quit. <laughs> quit talking about me. Praise the Lord. Church, you go through the book of Mark and it goes through all of the failures that the disciples had. It goes through all the successes that they had. But what God is trying to do is give us a faith that when we walk into his presence one day, we're going to say, Lord, and he's going to know exactly who we are. He's going to say, you went through everything with me. You trusted me through everything. We don't want to go to his throne and say, well, I only trusted you when you did a miracle. I only trusted you when life was good. I only trusted you when I was healthy. (coughs) We want to be able to say, Lord, there's sickness and in hell. The rich and for poor. No matter what happened, Lord, I was married. I never looked away from you, Lord God. I was faithful. In church, if we have a church full of 5,000 people and we had a multitude, it would not be better than a church that had 50 disciples. 5,000 people in this church could never accomplish what 50 disciples could do in this church. We were faithful to God in the house, the doors open, and we weren't looking to feed our belly, and we were looking to say, God, I love you. God, I want to be with you. God, I want to know more about you. God, I want to raise up disciples that'll follow me as I follow you. Church, 50 disciples would change the world around us. Praise God. Now, let me ask you never given your heart to the Lord. I said, man, I've, I've prayed the prayer, but I've never been a disciple like you're talking about. I want to pray with you today. You say, what do I have to do? We just need to pray. I just want to lead you in a prayer, and I want to be there to help follow you through with that prayer into a life that's following Jesus and hungry for the Lord, growing in the Lord. You say, man, my walk hasn't been like that. I've been actually kind of fickle. That's what this message is for. Don't be fickle anymore. No matter what happens in your life, let's serve the Lord. You say, well, what do I need to do? You and the Lord need to have a conversation. You need to say, Lord, and I I remember the prayer that I prayed to the Lord when I came to the Lord. I told you a hundred times. My prayer was, Lord, I'm going to take your hand. Nobody lead me to the Lord. Nobody told me about the Lord. I just knew I had to get right with God. And my prayer by my bed with nobody to help me was, I'll hold your hand no matter what happens in life. I'll never let go. I'll 
hold your hand no matter what happens in life. I'm never letting go. No matter how bad it gets, no matter if every friend leaves me. I actually told God this when I came to No matter what friend leaves me, no matter if I'm all alone, no matter what happens, if I have nothing to my name, God, I'm never letting go. You're the Lord of my life. And if you'll pray that prayer today, you'll have a foundation that will stand forever. Praise the Lord. Find me if you need prayer. That's what we're here for. Amen. that everybody has a firm foundation. Hallelujah. If you don't, like I said, we're always here for prayer. I was, I'm going to close with this story real fast here. I was reading a story about a king named Charlemagne. And this is kind of a gross story. I was telling my daughter about it yesterday. But he requested that they bury him in a certain way. And so they set up this uh, tomb put him in his throne had his um, um, what do you call it crown (laughs) had his crown had a robe around him and he requested because of his faith that a bible be opened on his lap I thought wow that's interesting and he wanted it open to a certain place And so hundreds of years later, they came in to see if it was true what they had said and done. And as they opened it up, his bony little finger was still on the same place in the Bible that he requested. And it says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That king (laughs) did a good thing. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Church, we're here to help each other be disciples of Christ. To live it to the end. Not just make a profession and walk away, but live it for the rest of our lives for the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, right now, send your people away full of your spirit. Strengthen their faith, Lord God. Oh, Father, through good and bad, Lord God, no matter what happens, we're going to trust you, Lord. We're going to follow you, Lord God. When other people walk away, Lord God, we're going to continue to follow you, Lord. We love you and we thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. In your name we pray. Everybody said, Amen.